Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. And Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, January 24th, we are studying John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. Jesus returns to Galilee, he goes to Cana, and there an official from Capernaum journeys to him to beg for Jesus' help. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Tim Cook. Pastor Cook serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. It's great to be back. As we get started today, Pastor Cook, let's talk context. What should we know about John's Gospel and chapter 4 leading up to this section? John chapter 4 is usually known because of Jesus's interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And uh, we are still in chapter 4, but we get a uh, shorter kind of uh, pericope, I guess would be the fancy word, right? Uh, This is a shorter story um, that is moderately related to the woman at the well, but um, anyway, it's this healing of a, of a royal official son and Jesus is making movement, which is to say he was in Jerusalem or in the, excuse me, he was in the region of Judea with John the Baptist. Uh, John was baptizing and now he's moving back from the region of Judea up to Galilee and uh, so the Samaritan woman at the well was on his way there, and now he has returned. He's in Galilee, and um, and this is the first episode that happens after he's returned. Hmm. So Jesus is, is moving, as you said. We've we've seen that back at the beginning of chapter four. That's where John told us that he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So he's continuing that journey northward. Uh, it, He's actually going down to Galilee, even though he's going northward. That's generally the way they would speak, I think. So, because you go up to Jerusalem and you go down elsewhere, I think, right? Uh, usually, though, Cana will be a little bit higher than Capernaum. Okay. They'll talk about going down to Capernaum because it's at the lake. Right. But yes, okay. you, that's correct. So, okay. So, Jesus, he's, he's going to Galilee. And, and just talk a little bit about the movement of Jesus within the, the Gospel of John, if you would. I know you were telling me a little bit about this before we came on air, that there are several sections of movement. Can you just kind of give us a, a general overview of how that looks in John's Gospel? And yeah, there are these references to the uh, Jesus going to Jerusalem and John. In the other Gospels, we don't have these repeated um travels to Jerusalem, but we do in, in John. And so this, uh, particular section, um, is leading to Jesus heading to Jerusalem. Now a second time he was in Jerusalem. He cleansed the temple in chapter two. And by the end of chapter five, he'll be back in Jerusalem 
uh, talking about uh, John the Baptist once again. And so that's, uh, that's part of that movement. He's going to and from Jerusalem until such time, of course, as he heads to Jerusalem to carry out his uh, salvific work over Holy Week. Okay, so this is part of the end of his journey away from Jerusalem. As you said, he's going to go back up to Jerusalem. We'll see that in the next text in chapter 5. In terms of the the reception that Jesus has been receiving, whether in the area of Judea or, or elsewhere, how, how has he been received so far, and how, how are we going to start to see that change in this text? Well, Jesus, uh, they didn't take kindly to him uh, cleansing the temple, as it were, so it's a little bit of a, a mixed uh, reception. Uh, Nicodemus, in chapter 3, uh, is confused and suspicious, and so not necessarily a great reception there either, but it depends on who's interacting with Jesus and on what basis. Today, he's going to be uh, received, or at least it'll, it'll be mentioned that he's received well uh, when he comes home, but the reason they receive him well at home is not uh, a very sanctified one, which is they're impressed by his signs and his wonders, but Jesus is not here to uh, dazzle people with signs and wonders, but to speak on behalf of the one who sent him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to stress or emphasize or appeal to uh, the crowds and um, really all people uh, listening and believing on account of the word that he speaks, not just the signs that he accomplishes. All right, let's go ahead and take a look at this text from John chapter 4. We're beginning at verse 43 this morning. After the two days, he, Jesus, departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and his whole, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. That's our text for today. That is John 4, verses 43 to 54. So, uh, Pastor Cook, as you were saying, this text involves the movement of Jesus, and it, it starts by saying after two days he departed for Galilee. He was in Samaria. Now he continues his journey north into Galilee. We get this, at least in the ESV, it's a parenthetical note. It's set off in parentheses. 
that Jesus had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. What What's the point of bringing that up? Where does Jesus talk about that? Well, interestingly, not in John. Um, he speaks, we have the very direct reference uh, of this from Mark chapter 6, verse 4. When Jesus is in his hometown of Nazareth, he laments that he can't do signs because their unbelief, and he's talking about how a prophet uh, has no honor uh, in his hometown. It's as, almost as though they're too familiar with him. They appeal to, well, don't we know his father and his and his mother and his mm-hmm. brothers, and, uh, et cetera. So, um, however, in John's gospel, in the introduction, uh, in John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And we see a rather significant uh, display of that in his interaction with Nicodemus, who is one of the Pharisees. So Nicodemus, it's not that Nicodemus is being rude. Um, he might be, but I, I, that's not how I read the text. But he's certainly ignorant or misinformed to the point where Jesus is frustrated. Are you not one of the Pharisees, he says. So it's this, uh, a pretty stark contrast where Jesus's words are being rebuffed by Nicodemus at seemingly every turn in John chapter 3. When you get to John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. So that's one mark against her. Uh, you know, and she's uh, living a not particularly ethical lifestyle, having had five husbands and is now on man number six. Um, and yet this woman, unlike Nicodemus, uh, believes Jesus at his word. And uh, so you've got that, you've got that stark contrast going on. Uh, so what's happening? Well, when Jesus is kind of among his own, uh, they don't receive him. But when he is outside, uh, he is received. So those themes are all playing together. I would um, also suggest that John, the writer, the evangelist, is writing this gospel with an awareness that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are already floating around Hmm. edifying and strengthening the church on earth. And for the pastor listeners out there or those who are particularly nerdy and want to dig down deeper into this, you can, there is a fantastic essay by Richard Balcom in his book, The Eyewitnesses of Jesus, uh, that's called John for the Readers of Mark or Mark for the Readers of John. I forget, forget the phrase, but he makes a very compelling case that, uh, you almost have to believe that John had copy of Mark in his hands because mm. of the number of overlaps. And this would be one of those, uh, instances of that. So are you, you suggesting that, that are you suggesting that pastors are nerdy? Yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. All right. But no, no, we we don't take offense at that. So it's That's it's right. okay to be nerdy. That's right. Pastor or not, it's okay to be nerdy. So yeah, and I appreciate you saying that because I, I do I about about the connection to the the synoptic gospels here with that note in verse forty four because you know although John doesn't record Jesus saying that you know like in letters of red as it it's written in some Bibles. Yet he certainly heard Jesus preach that as it is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. And so, I mean, you know, you, you'd see it's like when John says this, it's kind of like he knew Jesus said that. And 
like you said, there's there's a compelling case to be made that John knew that others had written that Jesus had said that. So I mean, it's it's nice to see how, even though yes, we should we should understand John for John's sake and and kind of pay attention to the way that he structures his narrative. It's also just very strengthening to our faith to see how the Synoptic Gospels and John they do all go together. They're telling us of the same Jesus, even if they each put their own uh, certain emphases in certain places. That's right. And we see the exact opposite occur. I think it's in Matthew's gospel when Jesus is on trial. Uh, you know, they're, they're going to accuse him and saying this, this man who uh, said that he would rebuild the temple or, you know, destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, that doesn't show up in Matthew's gospel, but that is very explicit in John chapter two. So yeah, these things are not being written in, in a vacuum. They are uh, aware of the Christian community. And, and it's, it's edifying, um, giving grace to all who hear uh, or read. So John notes in verse 44 about what Jesus said about a prophet having no honor in his hometown, but then Jesus actually goes, at least toward his hometown, he goes to Galilee, which is where he's from, and he's actually welcomed there. So how do those two verses go together? Yep, on the first one, we could say, not technically Nazareth, though the references to Nazareth and John are pretty thin. Um, but <clears throat> the issue would be, or maybe the way to wrap your head around the seeming discrepancy is the honor that Jesus has in Galilee has to do with uh, his ability, as I said before, to dazzle down in Jerusalem with his signs and his wonders. This gets referenced at the end of John chapter two. And, uh, and so what, what is it about Jesus that has people receiving him with honor? It's what they can see. And, uh, Jesus is going to make a strong emphasis about what you can hear. Um, and that is, uh, famously brought up in the narrative of Thomas, uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet and yet believed. And so we're going to see that theme picked up uh, or hammered down big time uh, moving forward in this text. Mm, okay, yeah, that's it's going to become very important as Jesus interacts with this official from Capernaum. So Jesus, I mean, maybe when, when I read verse 44 in this context, then that a prophet has no honor in his hometown and he goes to Galilee, which is you know, kind of where he's from, and he's welcomed there, maybe to understand his own hometown more broadly than than just it's more about Nazareth, but about just the way he's been received by his own people. You know, you brought up John one verse eleven earlier, and he hasn't been he either hasn't been received by them or he hasn't been received for the right reasons just yet. It's it's been based on these signs, and and so that's kind of what John is seems to be introducing for us to think about as we go forward. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jesus now has come to Galilee. It is, and I, I think it's also this. I appreciate verse forty-five just for the the note that John gives us that these Galileans have seen what Jesus has done. You know, because they were in Jerusalem for the feast when he was. It's not just that Jesus is making these trips, but he's going with other faithful Israelites who who have heard and seen about him. This verse, I think, gives you a pretty decent picture of of how the word about Jesus is spreading or how people are, are seeing Jesus and what he's doing. It's not all being done in a corner, but, but other people are quite aware of who this Jesus guy is, including those from Galilee. And they're, they're interested in him. That's right. And 
I would remind the listeners that going to the Passover, if you're going to be a faithful uh, Israelite and they're following the law of Moses, um, you have to. Like it's it's an obligatory feast. It's uh, punishable by death if memory serves correctly. There are exceptions, of course, if you're you're not clean, um, ceremonial ceremonially clean to be there or not. Um, but that that's a pretty significant feature, um, which is yeah, Jerusalem gets packed with a lot of people because you got to go, and uh, and the Samaritans' unwillingness to do so, of course. Yeah. I'm sure you talked about that in the previous episode, but um, that that's part of what rankles uh, the faithful uh, Israelites or the observant Israelites in, in Jerusalem and surrounding uh, areas. All right, so Jesus now has has come back to Galilee, and in fact to Cana. That's the setting that John gives us in in verse 46. So talk a little bit about about the setting. Jesus is in Cana. We're going to have an official from Capernaum. Remind us of of this setting and some of the significant details that we need to understand this text. All right, the Sea Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee, and uh, the, so Cana is about twenty miles west, and maybe a bit south, hmm. um, definitely west of uh, Cana, and so that's the that's kind of the so it's a pretty big distance. It's not an insignificant distance to travel, uh, especially given their modes of transportation at the time. Um, so Jesus is in Cana of Galilee. Uh, word travels apparently quite quickly. And this uh, gentleman from Capernaum is now going to make, he's going to make the trek. He's going to put in uh, the, the personal appeal on behalf of his son. So that's a little bit of the geographical uh, picture. And maybe then <laughs> to that same end, the water from the Sea of Gal- Galilee uh, is flowing down to uh, the Dead Sea, which is directly east of Jerusalem. So if we're going, we should probably make a correction of our earlier statement. Jesus going to Cana or going to Cal- Galilee, he's probably, uh, he's probably travel. he's probably ascending to get there. Okay. All right. So, but, right. Yeah. Okay, very good. So that's the ge- geography. Also, Cana, John John mentions particularly that that's where Jesus had made the water wine, which is the first of Jesus' signs, as as he noted back in chapter 2. And of course, now we're going to come to the second of Jesus' signs. Is that there must be at least a little significance for John to, to just point that out to us again? Yeah, he's going to remind uh, probably... Reminding the reader, I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that the readers have forgotten this. Yeah. Uh, so, so soon, but, but he does point it out and, uh, I think he's going to set it up, uh, specifically because by the end of, end of the story, he's going to say, this is, as you said, the second of the signs that we can kind of peer into. Okay. Why is John highlighting all of these, well, these things specifically? And why is he enumerating them? Uh, cause clearly Jesus did what we would consider just on a scientific level, signs and wonders between sign number one and sign number two. So, mm, Right, um, right. Well, and we even we even know that because Jesus had done things in Jerusalem at the feast, the, the text tells us, so we know there are right. other things, but, but he's numbering them and he's pointing out these particular ones, including the one we see here. 
Uh, one I, I also in this verse, verse forty six. I'm curious about this this man who comes to Jesus in the ESV. He's called a, an official, and and just thinking about the the people we've met in John so far. You know, you talked about Nicodemus in chapter three, and there's there's a contrast between Nicodemus and then the woman at the well that we meet in John chapter four. We're still in John chapter four, right off the heels of of that woman. Is there? I don't know. Do you like this official? Some is he Roman? Do we know anything about who he is? And and is there maybe a contrast going on yet again, or at least some sort of we're invited to to think about these two together with the woman at the well and this official? I did not look into that, um, so I don't know if it uh, if it's Roman or or not. the The translation is vague because the the Greek word is vague. It doesn't tell us what kind of uh, official it is, and I didn't uh, consult a commentary that kind of uh-huh. unpacked that with further evidence. No, that's, so that's I'm just a that's big wet blanket here. That's okay. That's all right. I mean, all I what I have is the Lutheran Study Bible note that just suggests that the the Greek word may suggest uh, an official of Herod Antipas or maybe a relative of of the Herodian family. I guess more than more than maybe pinning down exactly who this guy is. Just the fact that he is some kind of official, I think the, the word suggests you know, someone that you're going to think of more highly than you would of the Samaritan woman when you first met her. Is there, is there a contrast in the way that the two interactions play out between Jesus and the woman and, and the way Jesus, I mean, I don't know, when, when Jesus is pretty curt with this guy. Whereas with the Samaritan woman, you have a lot more conversation that takes place. Is there... I don't know. I'm not sure that I have an exact question. It just seems that having these two side by side, that we're seeing some invitation to think about them together and the way Jesus speaks to them. And I don't know, maybe it's all related to what we're going to talk about with signs and things like that. Right. They're they're different in the sense that he's approaching Jesus with a specific request. Uh, the woman at the well seems to be more of a quote, quote, accidental encounter. Uh, and so in that regard, you, you have a, you have a man who's, I mean, the the woman at the well does not know who Jesus is. Um, she gets to the point where she like has this epiphany and goes, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Um, but this guy, Jesus's reputation is preceding him. Uh, and so he's, he's hunting him out specifically. Now, where I think I see, or where there is a, a strong connection, at least by the end of the story, you have this trust in the word of God. Uh, that was exhibited by the woman at the well that is also exhibited by this official from Capernaum. Yeah. Uh, albeit they both had to be yeah. gently coaxed to that position. Sure. It wasn't a, uh, an immediate, uh, oh yes, of course, kind of, uh, situation. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I think, I think that's something to chew on. That's good. That's good. So let's, let's talk then about what this man does in the text. Verse 47, he's, he's made the journey. What does he come and ask Jesus to do? He says uh, to Jesus, please, uh, he makes two requests. He wants Jesus to come with him to Capernaum. That's the first request. And then the second request is subordinate to it, uh, or maybe the ultimate goal um, is to heal his son. So you might, for you and I, if we want to think in terms of ultimate or penultimate, kind of a thing. Uh, the ultimate goal is he wants Jesus to heal his son. 
but his, his request is, uh, I need you to come with me, uh, and do it and do it there. And, and Jesus gives, uh, as you said, he, he's pretty curt, uh, or short with the man. Um, and you always get the impression that Jesus is offering, uh, almost as though Jesus is talking to himself out of frustration, like, ah, why won't you people, uh, listen? And, uh, so that's what, that, that's what happens. And I, it is, it is important for the hearers to recognize the double nature of the request, because when Jesus offers up his rebuke or his, uh, I believe the commentary I read called it an upbraiding uh, of the man, when he makes his follow-up request, it shifts in that shift. He leaves one of those two requests out and it's significant in its absence. Hmm. Okay. So I, don't well, want, I don't want to get too far ahead, uh, but it's like two verses down. But anyway. Okay. All right. Well, we'll try not to get too far ahead. Okay. So there, there are two requests then to come to Capernaum and to heal the son who is at the point of death. Jesus, as you said, he, he upbraids him or he rebukes him. It's, it's a very short response. What is, what is Jesus' rebuke? Why, why this rebuke? Let's start talking about that. All right, Jesus, uh, this is the exact quote. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The first thing you have to know as the hearer, and this is noted in most Bibles, there's usually a footnote here, the you is plural. So Jesus is talking to the official specifically, but he's talking about people more broadly and generically. So he says, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. And that is a theme, as I've referenced before, that runs throughout this entire gospel, which is you don't actually see Jesus until after you hear him or take him at his word. So it is God's word that opens your eyes to see him as he is. and. Throughout John's gospel, the crowds typically have that backwards. That's why Jesus is received with honor in Galilee, because were they listening to Jesus's rebuke about the temple uh, and his father's house and the tearing it down and the rebuilding, or were they just excited to see the signs and wonders? Well, they were excited to see the signs and wonders. It's the same reason they follow him into Jerusalem the last time. They saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, but were they listening to all of the words preceding that? Um, I am the resurrection, the life, et cetera. So that's where we're at with Jesus. He's emphasizing a hearing and believing of the word of God over the sight. So we're going to keep talking about that theme of seeing, hearing, believing on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking about John 4 with Pastor Tim Cook. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you?
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, January 24th. We are studying John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54 with Pastor Tim Cook. He serves at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas. Pastor Cook, prior to the break, we were talking about Jesus' words there in verse 48, where he says, unless you, and you pointed out you all, this is plural, unless you all see signs and wonders, you, again, plural, y'all will not believe. You, you, we've brought this up throughout the conversation about this matter of, of seeing and that's not like when you, I think the way you phrased it earlier is the the folks here in Galilee, the reason they welcome Jesus is because they've seen what Jesus has done. And I think you said that was a, a less than sanctified reason for believing. I guess I, I want to hear you talk a little bit more about this matter of of signs and seeing, because I, I know it's going to become clear as we go through the text, but on the one hand, you have Jesus doing things like he is letting people see. So there, there must be something to the seeing, and yet that's not the fullness of it. And even thinking through, you know, in the Old Testament, there are times where people either request a sign and are given it, or sometimes God even offers a sign of his own volition. Just talk a little bit more about this, because it doesn't seem that seeing is all bad, but it's just not enough. Can you, can you keep talking about that a little bit more? Yes, I can. Uh, I knew you could. Wonderful. The, you're right. Elsewhere, Jesus will say, all right, if you won't believe me on account of my words, at least believe me on account of the signs. So they're, they're working together in the same way that we're not going to pit John's gospel against the synoptics. Uh, the seeing and uh, the hearing go go together. But if you look at this particular text, the request that the official makes and Jesus's reply to him, it is, is often the case. It doesn't seem to flow or follow. What does Jesus's words have to do with this man's request. He said, come with me, heal my son. And it's as though Jesus is just off in la-la land, like, hey, we're going to be talking about this over here. Now, if that's true, you know, this is the son of God. You go where, where he leads. So Jesus is going to seize this moment with this official who has come to him uh, to make a declaration about the people of God and emphasizing um, the, the believing on account of, of the words. So why is the official traveled 20 miles, uh, to Jesus? Well, Jesus's reputation has preceded him on account of the signs. 
And so Jesus says, he, right now, and Jesus tells that, he's like, all right, here we have a guy because he has, um, if he has not personally seen the signs, though he well may have, it says that um, they had gone down to the feast. Um, he, I saw that happen there. God can do that for me here. Um, and now Jesus is going to piggyback on that and he's going to offer him uh, something he can't see. Uh, which is just a word uh, moving moving forward, and so that. Uh, th- but they, they go they they definitely they definitely go together, and um, Jesus is not opposed. And we always got to be careful. And John's gospel gets abused this way maybe more than most, where because Jesus talks in these terms of seeing as opposed to believing. Uh, or kind of a, a more spiritual significance, you know, with a spiritual birth, et cetera. Um, people are uh, susceptible to kind of divorcing people from their creatureliness. Um, and as though somehow your eyes are of no value at all. Uh, but uh, Jesus is not, you know, he's, he's the word made flesh um, before he's anything else. And uh, and words are heard before they're seen, um, and you need to uh, you need to understand them uh, as as they are. And so this is how Christ coming and proclaiming that which he has seen from his Father. Right. So I have seen the Father, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to declare that to you um, because nobody sees the Father and lives. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're he's he's inviting not only this man but all who who read these words who listen to these words to to not simply see again we don't want to to lose that but to and, and as you said i think you know we just have to understand that john is is moving toward the the very end of the gospel where jesus is going to to speak to thomas about this very thing and will even declare then those blessed who have not seen and yet believe because they've heard and and that's what we're going to to see from this man as as you said Jesus is about to offer him not something to see but something to hear a word and so Jesus uh, uh, we've called it it's been called an upbraiding unless you and again plural y'all see signs and wonders y'all will not believe the official comes right back at Jesus with a request and you you brought this up earlier pastor cook and said you didn't want to get ahead of yourself well here we are What's the request now in verse 49? How is it different from what we heard from him previously, and why is that important? Yeah, the first request was, come down to Capernaum and heal my son. So come with me and heal my son were the two requests. Now he has dropped the heal my son part, and he has said, just come with me. So that's the difference. Now, why has he dropped the healing part and not? I mean, if you were a father and you could kind of choose, uh, you would expect the appeal would be on the healing as opposed to the accompanying. And this does continue to fit with the seeing is believing theme. So now this official is essentially uh, treating Jesus in the same way that Jesus is rebuking the people for act in the way that people are acting. Which I, I, I'm tr- struggling to, I, I'm going to try very hard to make this clear, but 
what's the advantage of Jesus accompanying the official? It's this. If you accompany the official, then Jesus can do what? He can see that the son is actually as sick as the official says he is. All right? So, okay, Jesus, you're going to want to heal this kid once you see that he is actually as sick as I claim. And so this official is kind of showing his hand by uh, this second request, which is just as Jesus is rebuking all the people for not believing what they're hearing, the official thinks that Jesus is the same way. Oh, Jesus doesn't believe that my son is sick. So why don't you just come with me and then I can make the appeal to heal my son more uh, powerfully when the evidence is before your eyes. But what do we see with Christ? He becomes the very thing that he's exhorting the people to do, which is he, first of all, he's um, he, omniscient, so he knows all things. But uh, even even just as as in his humanity, he believes the man's word. He doesn't need to see the man's son sick to know that the son is at the point of death. He'll just, I will believe your report. And in that same way, Jesus is asking all the crowds to likewise believe my report uh, that I am the one who has come from the Father not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Hmm. So, I mean, to if I can try to, to rephrase that just to make sure I'm, I'm understanding, the, the man's request changes in the way that Jesus has actually accused the people of, of being. So he, he says, essentially, if you could just see Jesus, this, the son of mine, then you'll do. So he, the man assumes that Jesus is a seeing and then believing. Jesus has called all people, including this man, to instead be believing and then seeing. And so he then essentially models that for this man in the way that he goes about this sign. Instead of going to see he gives the man, he, he believes the man and then gives the man what he's asked, which then becomes a, a call to faith for this very man to believe the word that Jesus has given him. I, does yeah, that make that sense? Was, it does make sense. I think that was very helpful. Um, when I was typing this out, it I, I get like goosebumps all over my body, but every time I tried to type it, I didn't know how to do it succinctly. <laughs> but I think you did it. I think you did it pretty, pretty well. Okay. Uh, the man is afraid that Jesus doesn't believe him. And Jesus does believe him in the same way that Jesus, his fear or his frustration or yeah, his frustration with the people is what you don't believe me. So let me show you how you can believe people and it will be okay. Hmm. Um, so it's great. So then, the, and this is where the, the text is just absolutely wonderful. Jesus has believed the man and given then the healing, go, your son will live. And he's given that healing with a word. And then John tells us that the man believed the word. I mean, that's, we, we shouldn't skip over that part of the verse to get to the quote miracle or the sign. That's just as miraculous that this man having been living by sight now is living by faith. And believes Jesus word. Yes, that's exactly right. It's at least as significant. So Jesus Again, track with what's happened. The guy says, uh, come with me, right? Come down before my child dies. And Jesus essentially says, no. Okay. So that specific request, 
Jesus has answered with a, with a stern, no, I'm not going to do that. However, he gives the man by grace, ultimately what the man desires. So another place where this happens in scripture is uh, with Moses and the bronze serpent. When all of those serpents come into the camp, the people approach Moses and they say, we have sinned against you and against God. Please pray that the Lord would take the serpents away from us, which is not what happens. Uh, God answers their prayer, but he doesn't answer the prayer in the way that they desire. They want the serpents to go away from us, but that's penultimate. The real request, the actual desire is to be saved from their plight. And God gives them that request. He gives them, okay, you're going to cast the bronze serpent, put it on a pole, anyone who's bitten can see and live. And so God grants them salvation um, by not doing what they ask. So if you're tracking with me, that's the same thing that happens here. The man has asked Jesus, come with me down to Cana uh, to see, right? My son uh, is near death. And Jesus essentially says, no, but I'm going to give you ultimately the thing that, that you want uh, and desire anyway. Go, your son uh, will live. And then the man does. He does the thing. Jesus, who has believed the man's word that his son is sick, uh, now believes Jesus, that he has uh, the power uh, to work that salvation, even from a distance. I don't know how significant that particular aspect is for, uh, for the gentleman, but he does believe Jesus's word, like, Hey, your son, your son lives, um, and is going to continue to live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's, uh, that's a beautiful, uh, fulfillment of, uh, you know, a prayer or request. Yeah, yeah, and and Jesus does it by His word, and then the the man believes that word, which is such a, a wonderful thing. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever seen this? There's a little book published by CPH. It's called Ha Ha Among the Trumpets. It's sermons by Martin Franzman. Have you ever seen that little book, Pastor? Yep, I do. I uh, took it from a retired pastor's library, so I, I own a copy. I'm, I'm sure he gave it to you. You didn't just take <laughs> it from him, probably. But do you, right. the, at the the very last sermon in that book is on this text, and it's called "The Man Who Went Home with Only a Word in His Pocket." And it's a, it's a fantastic little sermon. Uh, Pastor, Pastor Franzman, Dr. Franzman says, I'm just going to read part of it because I think it's just a, a beautiful thought. You know, what happens then? Go thy way, thy son liveth. Jesus sends the man home with only a word in his pocket. Back he goes over the 27 kilometers. Perhaps he saddled a beast that was to have carried the healer to the boy's bedside, trots along riderless beside him. And what happens then? This is the unnoticed miracle in the miracle story. The man believed the words of Jesus and he went his way. What manner of man is this that not only winds and waves obey him, but an agonized father of a dying boy picks his way home across the ruins of his shattered hope on a word alone? He believed. His was probably one of the minutest of the mustard seeds of faith. And no sign, no miracle. He had that word in his pocket. And that was all he had to go on for those 27 kilometers. But it is faith that sees signs and wonders. I just, I mean, th- th- that's just a, a brief, you know, excerpt of the sermon. The sermon itself is, is actually pretty brief. Uh, Dr. Franzman had a, a way with words that was just wonderful. But that, that thought that this man goes home with a word in his pocket has always stuck me. Uh, just such a, a wonderful, wonderful way of thinking about not only what happens to this man, but our, our lives of faith. 
that really that's what we have is is this word in our pocket but that's that's enough because it is the faith that sees the signs and wonders you know and and the way he he describes the man going there you know imagining the donkey that he had intended to carry Jesus now has no rider but what does the man have he has the word of Jesus and so when he gets home the word of Jesus has has happened it's he's done what he said by his word the man believed and so he saw it's just a a wonderful thing and I, again the the man who went home with a word in his pocket what a what a fantastic image it is it is a, absolutely wonderful yeah uh that uh feature of having this word uh, it's it's so much the core of uh all that we believe believe teach and confess um i was teaching catechism class last night and uh, we were talking about Moses in the burning bush and how uh, Moses appeals to, or essentially questions God, like, who are you? Like, give me some identifying features. And God says, I, I'm the God of Abraham, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So I asked the students, you know, why is that that significant? And as a former vicar of mine used to say, ask a stupid question and get stupid answers. Okay. Um, so I, I had to had to clarify my point, but uh, the God who made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I'm trying to uh, show these kids, and I'm just giddy. They they probably can't even understand my excitement. I said the God who gave promises to these three people has given you a similar promise. Uh, and then we got to, you know, press and prod. Okay. What promises got given to you? Where is that promise located? How do you know it's true? And and it just moves right into a clear, uh, baptism language. But in, in many, res- many respects, uh, we like this official sorrow, we have, been, we've been given a word by God. That's what we have. We have a word. Now it's not an uninformed word. It's not a word without sight, right? Um, John, first John is epistle, the whole first verse is an extended run on sentence about we've seen this, we've touched it, we've tasted it, we've heard it. It's, it's all right. We're eyewitnesses of these things. Um, but, uh, but believe, believe this word. And that's what we have you and I right now. And, and you hearers, you have this same word from, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, yeah. And what a what a wonderful thing that that God has given us his word and and when we have that, we have exactly what he says even if we haven't seen it. So this man has the word, go your son will live and he does that. He believes and he goes. Talk about then what he finds when he gets home in in verses 51 and 52. Yep. Uh so the his servants meet him on the way. So his son gets well. And as soon as the son, quote, quote, you know, turns the corner toward, toward health, uh, they dispatch uh, to find the master to deliver the good news. And what a, if you can just put yourself in those servants' footsteps, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, right? Um, to deliver the message that your son is getting well uh, must have been a great, just incredible joy, uh, as opposed to the alternative. Uh, before he left the fear of what they may have to deliver. And uh, 
So they, they meet him and they tell him his son's recovering and he's going to go on a little investigation. He's, he's got his suspicions now because he's uh, encountered the son of the living God. And he's asking about what time. And so they say yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And uh, in addition to just historic significance, uh, this does help us appreciate how far away Cana is from Capernaum. Uh, so this is not a day's journey. This is not a journey you can get done in a day. Uh, it, it's more than that. So there's a significant investment by this official um, to to get to Jesus, yeah. um, and he he knows. Uh, says the father. The father knew uh, that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, uh, "Your your son lives." Hmm. And and that then leads to again the the father knows, and so presumably he tells his servants. And then not only does he believe, it says again, but now his whole household believes. Right. Yep. So um, it's uh, reminiscent of uh, these uh, stories from the book of Acts, where someone believes the good news and then that good news is spread to the whole. So what Lydia and her whole household and and et cetera. Hmm. So we've got that, we've got that same, same verbiage going on. Uh, here and there, what are they believing? You know, uh, they, uh, they got to see the healing of the son in the way that the father didn't, but they didn't get to see the interaction between the father and Jesus. And so the father is believing the word of Jesus and his household is now believing the report or the witness or the testimony, uh, of the father. And so they're, they're believing without, um, without seeing in, in their own sense. Hmm. Well, and, and that reminds me of, of kind of what we were talking about earlier with the thinking about this in the context of what happens with the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, she, she interacts with Jesus, and then she believes, and then she goes to her town and tells the men of the town, hey, come talk to this guy. They do. And they tell her by the end of that text, you know, now we believe not just because you told us, but because we've talked to them. So, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's a, it, there seems to be a progression all the way to even to this point where now the household believes. And, and as you said, yes, they did see the son get better, but they've had no personal interaction with Jesus at all. They are believing in Jesus completely because of the preached word about Jesus that this man has, has given. I mean, it seems like there's a, I don't know. I, I sense a progression there. Right. Um, there is, and it's, it's the nature of good news. I'm cannot possibly be the first person to, to point this out. And I've probably done it before on your podcast, but, uh, (laughs) good news news demands to be shared. Yeah, It, it just does. Um, and sometimes it's as simple as uh, you read a good book and you get done. And for the next week, everybody you talk to, oh, have you read, have you read, you've got to read this book. You've got to read this book. You've got to have this experience. Or um, you go to a good, good restaurant. Uh, oh, man, you've got to go to this restaurant. And same thing. It's, it's this word of mouth uh, concept. Or, uh, one of my favorites is I get this, and I would imagine most pastors do. Uh, one of the advantages, and this is why everyone 
uh, you know, men should become pastors. One of the advantages of being a pastor is uh, you get to find out when couples are expecting before anyone else does. Uh, yeah. Because uh, they uh, often rightly desire prayers. And so they'll let you know the minute they find out and then they'll hold on until they hit that, you know, week 10, week 12. Uh, and then they'll make it known to to other people. But when they tell you that good news before they leave your office or hang up the phone or wh what do they say? Don't tell anyone. Yeah. Well, well, why, why do they even need to say that? Because they know what we all intrinsically know, which is good news has a way of demanding to be shared. So you and I have this good news that Christ has died for us. That he has risen and conquered death. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's graciously ruling and reigning over all things. He has gifts, good gifts that he desires to give us. And, uh, and we, we can't help but uh, share what we have seen and heard. Yeah, and, and we've seen that throughout the Gospel of John so far, all the way back to, to John chapter 1, even, even the baptizer, you know, behold the Lamb of God, and then the, the first disciples who, who share, come and see. Uh, Philip to Nathaniel, and again, the Samaritan woman over and over again, this this happens. And similarly for us, this good news demands to be told, and it is, and it is believed by the power of the Holy Spirit. John, the evangelist, then concludes this brief account by noting that this is now the second sign that Jesus has done when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Uh, talk again, just briefly, we're, we've got about a minute here, Pastor Cook. So talk briefly about the, the fact that he calls these signs of Jesus. If there's anything about the numbering that you want to share, help us to wrap things up on, on this text. Well, sure. One is just think about the word signs, um, if, you know, or a concept, a sign points to something else. Uh, it, it points, it's pointing you in a direction. So this sign, uh, it's not a self-contained uh, meet uh end unto itself. Uh, it is, it is pointing us, uh, as the listeners or readers, uh, to the sonship of, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, from the father who gives out the spirit. It is called the second sign. And I always get weary. Christians rightly desire to understand the word of God and maintain its truthfulness, uh, in all things. Um, but I, I would warn against uh, kind of a hyper uh, literal understanding of this. Please do not be the person who says this is the second miracle Jesus has ever done uh, in his life for a number of reasons. One, it's not called a miracle. It's called a sign. Um, that's a whole separate. We don't have time, but miracle is its own kind of headache. But um, the, the first the first sign that's referenced in John is the uh, water to wine in Galilee. But after that, Jesus is said to do signs and wonders in Jerusalem at the end of John chapter 2, 2 verse 23. Uh, and so this is now called the second one. And so the numbering isn't a um, chronicler sitting there trying to empirically record the events exactly in the order in which they're occurring. But this is a gesture on part of the narrator, John the Apostle, to, hey, pay attention to this sign. This is the second sign I want you to pay attention to. And, uh, and he's going to use these signs collectively, again, to declare Christ uh, to be the Son of God so that by believing you might have life in his name. 
Pastor Tim Cook is pastor at Zion Lutheran Church in Lynn, Kansas, helping us today to look at John 4, verses 43 to 54. Pastor Cook, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me on. This man took home a word in his pocket, a word that was true because it is the word of Christ, and you and I have his word. We believe, and so we see. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.